This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Mark Hazy. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. What is the most you've spent on a pair of sneakers? A couple of hundred bucks, five hundred dollars, a thousand? What about thirty grand? Because some people are, we know the world is obsessed with sneakers, has been for a while. Celebrities, brands are raking it in. How long is this craze going to last? Later, we're going to ask how these shoes have transitioned from pretty practical sports accessories to high-value commodities. Also, we're getting into the rate of young women being hospitalised for endometriosis. It's actually doubled over the past decade. So what does that mean for how we're treating endo? First, though, are your weekends away about to get a bit more expensive. Hack. $7.50 per $100 you pay. Every single cent will go to build more houses and maintain houses. We believe that what this is doing is simply encouraging more day trips to region. It is the consumer who is paying for this policy. On Triple J. How do we solve the housing crisis? Been a lot of attention on this over the past year, especially. Everyone's got a different take. We need rent caps. We need to make it easier to build more properties. A lot of people have been saying we need to be focusing on short-stay rentals. What do we do about the thousands of properties that are on Airbnb and stays? Well, Victoria has just announced a plan. It's going to hit short-stay rental platforms like Airbnb with a tax, a 7.5% levy. Now, it's not going to take effect for another couple of years until 2025, but the plan is that the money that's raised from this levy will go towards building social and affordable housing in Victoria. Some people think it's a great idea. Others are saying it's going to be a disaster. It'll mean you'll end up paying more for your holidays. It'll destroy tourism, especially in regional areas. What do you think? Do you reckon this levy for short-term rentals is a good idea? I'm keen to hear from you. You can call in 1300 Message in as well, 0439757555. Look, we did ask Airbnb to come on hack. Nobody was available to come on, but they did send through a statement. As you can imagine, not too happy with this announcement from the Victorian government. They say the levy's too high. It gives hotels a free kick and it's an uneven playing field. Let's find out a bit more with someone who's been looking into this issue for a while. Nicole Gurren is a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney. She's with us now. Hey, Nicole, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks very much for having me. Nicole, you've said in the past that Australia's been pretty lax with Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms. At first glance, what are you thinking when you look at this plan that's been announced from Victoria today? Well, I think it's positive that we're recognising the impact that short-term rentals, particularly unregulated short-term rentals, can have on housing markets and on local neighbourhoods. It's not the same impact everywhere, though, and we have to look when we're introducing things like levies or regulations, we need to ask what's the purpose of the control and if the main purpose or the or the rule or the tax, and if the main purpose is to Preserve the a permanent rental housing supply, then it's not really the most conventional way of doing that. So what do you think we should be focusing on? Well, a first step, of course, is actually to understand how many short-term rental properties are there and get a handle on how many, you know, whether we've got 
rental properties moving out of the permanent rental market and into the short term. I was um, going to ask, do we know how many properties are tied up in short-term rental arrangements? Well, the Victorian government obviously has put forward some of their own data, but the platforms themselves are notoriously um, cagey when it comes to sharing that type of data with communities and with government, particularly with the local governments who are trying to get a handle on what's what's happening in their areas. So we rely on third-party sites like the independent data um, source uh, inside Airbnb, and then there's some commercial um, providers as well who try to scrape data off the internet. But so a first step towards regulation is even just requiring registration of short-term rental properties and that provides a basis for working out where and, um, and how they might be impacting on local housing markets or on local neighbours and how you might start to respond to that impact. There has been quite a bit of criticism already that's come through in regards to this announcement. People saying this is going to be the highest short stay tax in the world. Airbnb has said, look, they're not against a levy, but it's too high and it should be something, you know, around three or 5% like other countries around the world. Do you think that's fair? Look, I wouldn't be talking about the amount of how much a levy should be. Again, it's back to what's the purpose of it. Now, if we're trying to preserve permanent housing supply, we want to say, let's, for instance, limit the number of nights you can put your home out on Airbnb or similar platforms to, say, 30 um, days in a calendar year, perhaps um, two months. That's equivalent to most people's holidays and so if you want to rent out your own home while you're away make some extra money you know go for it and similarly if you want to host tourists in your own home that's not taking away a rental unit and generally it's not disturbing your neighbours either so first and foremost if we're trying to preserve the housing stock we need to look at limiting the number of days that you can um, rent out permanent housing and in some heavily touristed areas we might say we don't need to limit that because holiday homes have always been an important part of the tourism infrastructure. But we do need to be mindful that rental markets, particularly rental markets in regional areas and certainly rental markets in central cities, can change very suddenly when you have an increase in um, in population, an increase in demand. And so even a small number of housing units being taken from the permanent rental stock and put into the short-term rental market can have a really big impact on rental vacancy rates. That's the availability of property for people who are looking to move into an area. And it can also mean that if tenants receive an eviction notice um, because the property is being sold or indeed put onto a short-term rental platform, that it's difficult for them to find another place to rent or to stay in an area. What about the arguments that targeting short-term rentals will decimate regional communities? Like people are saying today that people aren't going to want to stay in regional Victoria if they're going to have to pay more. Is this something we need to be thinking about as well? Look, I think 
once the measure is introduced, it will be interesting to monitor its impact on visitor economies. But it is fair to say that short-term rental um, operators have been able to operate without paying some of the normal taxes and indeed regulatory hurdles that that other types of accommodation providers, such as um, you know hotels, motels, and in fact traditional bed and breakfast establishments have had to face in the past. And it's also true that that some local councils have themselves imposed different rates on holiday rental properties, recognising the impact on local infrastructure, for instance, that having, you know, high influxes of visitors at peak periods can impose on local communities. And so, you know, again, in some places, holiday home operators have been required already to pay an additional fee to go towards those, those local impacts. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with housing expert Nicole Gurren about Victoria's plan to tax short-term rental platforms like Airbnb to help alleviate the housing crisis. We're getting a lot of messages through on this one. Liz says it's a great idea. People with money go away anyway. They won't bat an eye at that levy. But Clarissa in Melbourne says Dan Andrews is trying to fix this massive state debt by taxing consumers more. It's an utter failure. Someone else. People can barely even afford rent, let alone a holiday. It seems a bit ignorant to be worried about holiday costs. Let's go to someone who's called in, Robbie from Jim Boomba's on the line. Robbie, what do you reckon of this? Look, I just think it's a massive blow to the Aussie family just trying to get away. Like, I'm all for doing something to fix an issue but it's just way too much like we've already taken such a huge hit in every other way possible how's any any family gonna be able to just get away have a weekend you know the the whole point of airbnb was so that the average aussie family could get away for a weekend a week whatever it was yeah and have a bit of a holiday but it's not even possible now because they've just Okay. Well, out of such a big cost. There's definitely people who are saying the same thing, Robbie, and saying maybe we should be still focusing on short-term rentals but doing other things like restricting the number of nights that a property can be uh, put on a platform like Airbnb, like other countries around the world have done. Hey, Robbie, thanks for calling up with your opinion. I appreciate it. Let's get back to Nicole. Nicole, you've also flagged in the past that we could be putting more rules in place about how we use short-term rentals in crises, like during times of natural disasters. How would that work? One of the things that we've discovered, you know, in a terrible, terrible way, firstly with the bushfires and then with the terrible flooding over the past um, three years. And now, of course, with the rental crisis, you can't just snap your fingers and have housing available. So that's when it actually might be to our advantage to have this flexible housing stock, which exists in the short-term rental sector. And in fact, Australians have long had second homes, particularly in non-metropolitan regional areas, which happen to have been the areas that have been most affected most recently by fires, by floods and by sudden rental crises. And so if we've got a systematic way for states to declare, you know, when an area has been declared a natural emergency, for instance, or a housing emergency, there could be a short period of time when holiday homes are used as part of the emergency rental housing stock for displaced people who've had their houses damaged or are unable to secure appropriate rental housing while 
you know, the rest of the housing system catches up. Now, that has occurred in ad hoc ways. For instance, in the Northern Rivers region where, you know, holiday home owners did make their homes available to accommodate displaced flood victims. Unfortunately, because of the lack of a statewide policy framework, as soon as Easter came along, pre-existing bookings had to be honoured and there was no no way for allowing those displaced households to remain in place. They were all moved on, presumably further traumatising people who'd already been displaced. So if we had a system in place, we could actually say, look, let's embrace the fact that we've got a flexible sector of the housing system that's, you know, a, a fantastic asset potentially. But we need to call on that during times when we do genuinely need access to housing in response to natural disasters or indeed a rental crisis. And Nicole, do you think now that Victoria's made this first big move in Australia in regards to this levy that we'll see other states, territories jump on board as well? Well, that's an interesting question and I'm not in Victoria and so I'm not sure the the framework around monitoring the impact of the levy but certainly other states such as Western Australia are looking at imposing a, a nightly cap on the number of, of nights that properties can be rented on a short-term rental platform and we've got other um, states such as Queensland looking at ways to allow councils to potentially impose higher rates. So, you know, we we may see more action on this front. Well, we appreciate your take on it all. Nicole Garan, Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And still heaps of messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, come on, adding a big cost, it's $7 in every $100. That's hardly big enough to stop people from going away. That was Pete in Narandra. Nathan, though, reckons the percentage could be higher. He says, you know, just work to split it by metro and regional areas and change the rates between them. Someone else, I think it's a great idea. I live in country northern New South Wales and many people can't find a home. On the other side, a local family I know is airbnb two homes and planning on building another three Holidays are a luxury, a home is a need. And Matt in Sydney says these platforms are businesses that pay tax on their earnings already. The government can dedicate that tax money to housing infrastructure. Heaps of opinions. We'll definitely be hearing a lot more about that one. Hack. There's a lot of people who say to me, the pain's all in your head or or just take a Panadol, you can get over it, you'll be fine. But a Panadol does not do shit. On Triple J. We talk about endometriosis a lot more than we used to, even just a few years ago. So it's probably no surprise that more people are being diagnosed as they go to the doctor, get their symptoms checked out. There has also been a spike in the number of young women being hospitalised because of endo. The rate has doubled over the past decade and people are being diagnosed at a younger age. So are we getting better with how we manage endo in Australia or are there still massive gaps that we need to fix? It's an interesting question. And Chantelle alcori has been looking into it. I'm just moving my laptop out of the way because I think they're about to bring in lunch. (laughs) So sorry about that. It's lunchtime at a hospital in East Melbourne and I'm chatting with Georgia. It's her third hospital visit this month alone. She's in her 20s and her endo pain is so bad she needs to use a pink walking stick. 
feels like my right ovary is being stabbed with a big thick knife and that every time I move it's just going in further. Um, I'm also getting feelings where it feels like the inside of my uterus is being dug out with a melon baller or like a gremlin kind of going in there and just clawing its way through. Endometriosis for most people is this terrible cramping pain that usually comes with your period. It can even start causing pain from when you're just a kid. It causes inflammation and scarring, but also a lot of pain, brain fog and digestive issues. I remember going to a doctor when I was 15 and being like, you know, I'm screaming and bleeding and just this is such awful pain and being told, well, no, you're a woman. You're supposed to be in this much pain. Periods are supposed to hurt you. Just deal with it, essentially. A new report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare found the rate of hospitalisations for endometriosis has doubled among women aged 20 to 24 over the past decade. And Marie Davenport from Endometriosis Australia says more than 70% of those people are being sent home. Even though the, those presenting in emergency are really, really unwell and in pain, they're still not being referred on as required to be able to further investigate the source of their pain and then to be able to access the gynaecological care that they need. This happened the last time I went up. I waited for 10 hours to be sent home with endone and just not taken seriously. And I have had those experiences a lot of time. I've even had experiences where there was no pain help. The report says heaps of these hospitalisations are more likely to be partly or fully funded by private health insurance. And for First Nations people and those living in lower socioeconomic or remote areas, hospitalisations are much lower because of access issues. It's a matter of access and equity for those women who are living with this incredibly painful disease that is life-defining and uh, impacting every aspect of their life. According to Western Sydney Uni, it costs around $31,000 per person to manage their endo each year. Maurice says more needs to be done to help people with endo navigate the public health system and to educate medical professionals and the community about this disease. The investment in research into endometriosis is nowhere near uh, the, the amount spent on diabetes, which is as common as endometriosis. Australia's National Action Plan for Endo has also expired and there are growing calls for a new one to help deal with delays in diagnosis and improve equity. Where the pain is, it's an intimate part of your body that you kind of grow up associating with pleasure and all of a sudden there's pain. I think that vulnerability can make you feel a little bit helpless. There is no cure. So even if you have a hysterectomy, even post-menopause, Women have endometriosis for the whole of their lives and the pain associated with it and the other very impactful symptoms. It is a life-defining, lifelong disease. Hack on Triple J. Chantelle Alcori with that story. Hearing from you on the text line, Anastasia in Nunnawal Country says, I just got out of hospital for my fifth surgery. Thank you so much for talking about this. I'm so tired of hospital. We also heard from someone special. You just heard from Georgia in that story who suffers endometriosis. Georgia's dad has messaged in. He says, I want to send my love to Georgia from Shell Harbour. She lives in Melbourne and battles this disease by herself. She's an inspiration to young women. 
and I'm just so proud of her. Craig, we love a proud dad moment. Hi. I can guarantee that I have way more shoes than you. And this is a $10,000 shoe. On Triple Jack. Uh, most of us are not going to spend $30,000 on a pair of shoes. But people do. And we know sneakers are huge around the world. People line up for hours for the latest pair, a special collab, limited edition. It's kind of funny to think how sneakers have evolved over the decades into this really lucrative commodity when originally they were just sports shoes. As you're about to hear, young people are doing everything they can to get their hands on them. I want to know, are you a sneakerhead? Like, how many pairs of kicks do you own? And don't be embarrassed. Just tell me. Message in 0439757555. Reporter Olivia Ralph's been looking into this to find out what makes sneakers so valuable. How many sneakers I have? Yeah. I'm actually scared to count. Um, I did try, because once in a while people ask me and I'll be like, you know, I'll try. So I'll start counting the ones I have like by my door because I still have them in all the boxes. And I started counting. I was like, oh, this is like over 50 already and this is just one section. So I stopped. So (laughs) I'm going to say maybe at the moment, just under 200. I want you to meet Leanne, a.k.a. Monsieur Banana. She's an influencer and a self-professed sneakerhead. If you haven't seen her online, you might have spotted her with hundreds of other sneakerheads queuing outside shoe stores. I was so dedicated to get these Yeezy 350 Pirate Blacks and I was dedicated. So when I knew they were releasing it, I went to like a camping store, bought a camping chair and lined up. When the Yeezy hype was at its peak, people were lining up probably two or three days. Now these sneakers aren't your everyday pair you'd use to go to the gym. These shoes can sell for thousands of dollars and sometimes they don't even get worn. I have no idea how some of these kids are affording shoes. That's sneaker store manager Jaden Trainer. He sees young people spending hundreds of dollars in his Melbourne shop every day. It seems like kids now are getting a lot into either starting jobs younger or also parents are just being more willing to pay for these things for their kid. They want to fit in at school, they, they want to have the things that other kids have and their parents don't want them to miss out. But how did it get like this? How did a pair of smelly, throwaway sport shoes become such a hot commodity? Sneakers were basically a sporting goods equipment. Creative, designer and entrepreneur Jeff Staple reckons the hype first started way back in the 1980s when Nike thought they'd get in on the action in the basketball shoe market by signing a deal with Chicago Bulls rookie Michael Jordan. Jordan's got the ball. But if you get behind by 20 like they did tonight, then you're in trouble. Jordan give it around Scott and an eight slam. But it wasn't long before the cultural influence of sneakers started to spread. Something happened in the early 90s. Different people who were into different elements of culture, such as music, hip-hop, rock, punk rock, skateboarding, and used them not to play the sport in, but to express themselves. Most of the world's sneakers are made in Asia, where labour and manufacturing costs are cheap. And Jeff reckons the only thing that separates a $40 shoe from a $100,000 item at a museum is branding and storytelling. A lot of times people think that brands like Nike are not even like sneaker companies anymore. They're they're marketing companies first. In 2003, Nike actually approached Jeff to make a pair of sneakers dedicated to New York City. While he could have taken inspiration from the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building, Jeff proposed a version with a grey pigeon on it. In his eyes, it symbolised the city's urban street culture. Nike did not understand what a pigeon had to do with New York City. But sneakerheads got it right away. Some rioting broke out. Kids were sleeping outside for five days through a snowstorm. 
The police got involved. People were arrested. People brought weapons to try to get shoes in case they couldn't buy them at the store. And from that point, that pigeon dunk that I designed has become kind of like a holy grail of sneaker culture. A used pair is like 30,000, 50,000 US dollars. A mint condition pair recently sold on Sotheby's auction house for 100,000 US dollars. The power of social media has continued to transform the sneaker industry, turning musicians like Travis Scott and Kanye West into shoe designers. So I've got the Travis Scott ones here, uh, and these, you know, these can go from anywhere from $2,000 to $3,000. For many sneakerheads, it's more than just a shoe. It's a chance to own a piece of cultural history, and it's exploded into a billion-dollar industry that's showing no signs of stopping. Some companies are cashing in on the NFT market, creating virtual sneakers that act as digital commodities, while others are looking at 3D printing technology. But imagine you can, in the future, you could walk into a store, they measure your foot, and then with no inventory, in a few minutes or a couple hours, they print the shoe directly just for you. Then there's no inventory and it's fit perfectly for you. At the same time, Chinese brands like Anta Sports are on the rise, realising they not only have the manufacturing capability, but a growing number of cashed-up consumers, and they might not need Western brands anymore. There's no turning back now. We're never going to be barefoot. Hack on Triple J. Olivia Ralph with that story. Super interesting. People are getting in touch about how many pairs of sneakers they own. Someone says, I have about 70 pairs since moving house, but at my peak it was about 120 pairs. (laughs) That's wild. Let's get into this a little bit more now with Dr. Alexandra Sherlock, a fashion lecturer at RMIT. Hey, Alexandra, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, no worries at all. Thanks for inviting me. The sneaker craze, it's been around for a while. Do you reckon it's going to continue for a while yet? I'd say it probably will. I mean, look, we've we've always loved sneakers ever since they were, you know, first invented. But I guess over the years, and particularly with the rise of social media, um, we've seen that really kind of exponentially grow. And I think a lot of that's to do with the hype that social media kind of facilitates around these stories. And it was interesting... In the fact that you mentioned the pigeon, you know, and you know that that stuff, it, it, it just goes crazy. Um, I think probably what we love about sneakers is that there are so many brand styles and innovations that can enable to us express to sort of express our identity in so many different ways without necessarily changing our entire style or wardrobe. And also, as well, I think what we quite like about sneakers, as well as shoes, is being down on our feet sometimes. We feel it's a little safer to express ourselves a little more freely and creatively than we might do with the rest of our clothing. So there's a lot we can do with sneakers and there is a lot that is uh, that is done with sneakers that enables us to be, you know, quite creative in ways that we don't ordinarily feel kind of is might be safe. Um, so, yeah, I don't see it kind of particularly slowing down. It needs to slow down. Well, yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> so going to ask, because we talk about fashion, we talk about sustainability, right? Fast fashion all of the time is a big focus, to, especially for young people. How do shoes fit into this? Yeah, I mean... Shoes are terrible, let's be frank. Um, I think that footwear is a particular area of research for me. The footwear industry is said to be around some 10 years behind the rest of the fashion industry in terms of sustainability and circularity. Um, And that is a lot to do with the complexity of the way that shoes and particularly sneakers are produced. Um, Sneakers often have, you know, upwards of 70 different materials and components in them that are often bonded together with with adhesives 
which makes recycling extremely difficult. We produce over 24 billion shoes in the world annually. Wow. Um, 90% of those aren't really recycled, probably because a lot of the time they're not recyclable because it's really difficult to disassemble them and be able to recycle those different materials. So there's a lot of work to do here and sneakers are quite a significant kind of culprit. That said, the industry is making progress. Um, yeah, and I think it's really up to consumers or, or as well to kind of demand that progress and say that they want that progress. And just quickly, Alexandra, we've only got about a minute left, but younger people, I guess, mm. they're consuming a lot of these products, but they're also the ones who are the most conscious of environmental impacts generally. What kind of advice do you have for consumers if they're into sneakers but don't want to do the wrong thing? Yeah, I mean, look, ideally we want to be looking at reducing consumption, but that isn't always what people want to hear. Um, we can be a bit more conscious about what we consume. We can buy secondhand, but that's not always, not always very desirable. Shoes are very personal items. Does the brand that you're buying from offer take back or end-of-life solutions for the sneakers? Will they take responsibility for recycling them? That might help your choice. Consider the materials. Are they bio-based or natural materials? Will they biodegrade? So when they go out of fashion, if they have a short life cycle, ideally you want something that isn't going to pollute the environment when it does, is disposed. Mm. And a really good tip, if you're donating sneakers for the second-hand market, tie the laces together. I think people don't often think that... If sneakers become separated, they cannot be sold as a pair through the processing of recycled. That's um, a really good point. That's a very good point. (laughs) Tie the laces together. Fashion lecturer Alexandra Sherlock, you've just given us a crucial piece of information there. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. I appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.